1: Welcome to Debrief. I'm Megan Murphy, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. With each episode, we'll sit down with the world's leading business leaders, entrepreneurs, and political figures. It's a peek behind the scenes of global business, culture, and politics, a firsthand conversation with the people who shape the world's economy. If you don't feel smarter afterwards, then we aren't doing our job. In this episode, we speak with Jamie Dimon. CEO and chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase, whose storied business career includes stints at Citigroup and American Express. The New York Times once called him Obama's favorite banker, but for now at least, despite some rumors to the contrary, it looks like he won't be joining the Trump administration. We caught up with Jamie in mid-December in Detroit, where he was speaking at the Restored Garden Theater about the bank's $100 million investment in revitalizing the hard-hit city. So let's talk a little bit about some more recent news first. I'm sure the audience is as interested as I am. You have been, there was a lot of speculation about you potentially going into the administration as Treasury Secretary. Uh, was it a job you were interested in? Did you turn that job down?
2: So uh, first of all, welcome everybody. It's a thrill to be back here. We started this uh, a little over two years ago. And uh, if all of you here have been helping out Detroit, it's, you should be very proud of what you've accomplished. And. Uh, I've always been b- quite public about that I don't think I'm suited to be Secretary of Treasury. I love what I do. I'm not ready to do something else. And uh, I, I think I can add a lot of value to America just doing what I'm doing.
1: There we go. That's, that's the answer. So when I look now, as recently as September, when I look back at when you were talking about sort of what you thought the next administration would be, and this is before we knew the outcome of the election, you said you thought it would be very difficult for Wall Street guys to get confirmed. Uh, and to get in. And now we look at sort of the landscape we have. We have uh, several Wall Street figures, some of whom you know very well, including Gary Cohn from Goldman Sachs, Rex Tillerson from ExxonMobil, Steve Mnuchin. Mm-hmm. When you're looking at that cast of people, what do you think they're going to bring to the administration that's different? What's new that, that yeah. they're going to bring in terms of experience? Is this a good thing?
2: Yeah, so obviously I was dead wrong about that <laughs> you're not going to see a Wall Street person in Washington anytime soon. But you had a complete upheaval. The Republicans are in charge. And the Republicans have not been anti-business the way you've seen uh, the Democrats largely be anti-business for years. I think if you are going to be a president, you should have the best people sitting around the table. I think it's a mistake for the American public to constantly be told that if you work for an oil company, you work for a bank, you work for this, that that automatically makes you bad. You want the best team. And so, you know, honestly, I think it's a good thing. So I think a lot of these people are very qualified people who, want to, who are or patriots. They're going to want to help the country. They're not going to try to help their former company. That's not what they're going to try to do. They're going to, so these are people of deep knowledge that hopefully will do a great job.
1: And do you think that now, when you look at that sort of shift in terms of Wall Street, that this is a bit of a reset moment for the industry more broadly in terms of what the American people are expecting or what they're likely to see?
2: I think it's a reset moment for how businesses can be treated. So I've always believed, you know, 145 million people work in America, 125 million work for private enterprise, 20 million work for government. Okay, and we hold them in very high regard: firemen, sanitation, police, teachers. But you know, if you didn't have the 125, you couldn't pay for the other 20. So I think business is a huge positive element to society. And for for years, it's been beaten down as if they're terrible people or something like that. So I think it's a good reset. Detroit is a perfect example that you see where civic society, not-for-profits here, government, business, working together to improve the lives of, of American citizens. So yeah, I think the reset has a chance to do the same thing if you can duplicate uh, in, in what you're doing in Detroit or around the country, you're going to have a huge renaissance.
1: Well, let's talk about that, because you travel all around the country, you travel all around the world. And um, I want to read you just a quote. Jamie put out a note to employees after the election. And I just <coughs> want to read a little segment of that. Not, some CEOs did it, not many. Um, and this is what you said. We have just been through one of the most contentious elections in memory, which can make it even harder to put our differences aside. But that makes it more important than ever to bind the wounds of our nation and to bring together Americans from all walks of life, Recognizing that our diversity is a core strength of our nation, we must all come together as fellow patriots to solve our most serious challenges." When you, when you travel around the world, what we're seeing in terms of this economic populism phenomenon, mm-hmm. part of which drove this election. We've seen it in Europe with Brexit. When you look at this, what is your diagnosis from your travels, from your experience, about what is going on and what is really driving this explosion that we've seen, this economic angst yeah. that people feel, their dislocation from society? What do you diagnose it
2: as? So, I think, you know, I've heard obviously a lot of people try to diagnose what happened, why the populism, and all the things like that. If you actually dig into the numbers, it wasn't anti immigration per se. There's a little fear that America's changing too much, but it wasn't they're not anti immigrants. Most of us are, you know, children, grandchildren, great grandchildren of immigrants, and it wasn't even anti trade. But I, I think the, the, at the core of the matter, it was a frustration and an anger because of two things, really. Middle-class incomes have really not grown for 15 years. Okay? And you look at the facts, and usually when you hear facts like this, they're just dead wrong. Okay? People don't analyze them. Tax law changes, how, people, how things happen. But in this case, it happens to be true. And the second one is the low skill. Think of unskilled. And the difference between unskilled and skilled has been growing over time. And that unskilled really are having a hard time having what you would call a living wage. I think those two things are true. But the, what you need to do is diagnose why it happened. It didn't happen because business is bad. You know, and there, there are a million reasons come with technology, et cetera. And there are solutions, you know, solutions which I would say around training, work skills initiatives, or some of the people this room are working on. I would greatly expand the earned income tax credit to, so that if, you, you know, if you're making 8 $9 an hour, that the government will pay you three or four. Think of it as a negative income tax. Even if you're single right now, we, only, we do it for mothers with babies. We don't do it for single men. I think it gives you a job, the dignity of a job, a living wage. It helps small businesses. It's not you know, necessarily good for big business. But I think it's a wonderful thing to do for society. So you know, I think fixing corporate taxes, immigration, trade, all done properly, we'll have faster growth in America, and we can fix those problems. And uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people who talk about fixing those problems, they're answering those problems and they think they can beat up on business, that that's going to make it better, which it's not.
1: And so when you look at now, you have been announced to be taking on two roles. You're going to be chairman of the Business Roundtable, right. and you're going to be on a group that's advising the president-elect after inauguration on issues about the economy and policy, business policy. When you look at those two roles, which are separate, what are the things, what are the initiatives that you think he's going to need to tackle first, and what do you hope to advise him on? What do you hope to steer that direction toward?
2: Yeah, so the, you know, obviously anyone who's president, you know, I'm a patriot. I, I've always offered my help. I did to President Obama. Uh, I will f- to, to president Trump, some I'm in this group of 15 people, has not met yet. Think of his CEOs and a bunch of other uh, folks, and he wants, what I've heard is he wants that to be about jobs and growing the economy, so will be specific about that. And hopefully, we will have really good ideas, not, you know, not just a lot of people yapping ideas. The BRT's different. The BRT, the business roundtable is, if you look at uh, uh, America, we've got the Chamber of Commerce, who advocates on behalf of business, large and small and maybe it's got 25,000 members. This is 192 companies, pretty much representing large companies. But remember, these large companies represent, you know, if you take the Fortune 500 or the S&P 500 or something like that, half of all capital expenditure in the United States. Okay? And they, it drives a tremendous amount of growth. I personally think they are fabulous citizens in this country. They are philanthropic. We pay, everyone gets medical benefits. They, we take care of our veterans. We do education. We do schools. We want to have the country grow. So I think the BRT could take a very proactive uh, approach to help solve the nation's problems and and be part of the solution. So that's why, you know, I took on that challenge. And, uh, uh, but, but when you talk about very specifically, we need corporate tax reform. We are driving capital and overseas every single day. And, you know, I think the government made a mistake to act like the inversion was the problem. The problem is that our tax rate is so much higher than the rest of the world, and the rest of the world's been coming down, and ours has stayed level. And because of that, companies are leaving their money overseas, they're reinvesting it overseas, they're buying companies overseas, and some of that's permanent. It's not coming back. And so I think the only question is how much damage is done before we change it. And every study shows that reducing corporate tax rates helps lower paid people and wages. And so you know, uh, to me, we should solve that problem and hoping the new administration can do that.
1: You also talked uh, quite vocally in, re- in recent weeks and years about education, yeah. immigration, yep. um, and infrastructure, and the parts that those are going to play, and how yep. much are you going to spearhead that those initiatives? As yeah, well. so
2: you know, education. I mean, I think one of the greatest disgraces in this country is the fact that the, in, a lot in the city schools, fifty percent of the kids don't graduate in high school, and even those kids who graduate are not necessarily job ready. And you know, I look at that and say that's that's a crime. That is a disgrace. That's America at its absolute worst. We are allowing that to happen. And these kids don't have opportunity, and they don't have the opportunity that, that we all had at one point in life. And we have to fix it. What you hear the government talk about all the time is you know, make it free, make this free. It's not whether something is free, it's whether it ends up where you're properly trained for a job. So if you go to Germany, for example, two thirds of the kids at 15 or 16 go to vocational school. They work with, lo- those vocational schools to work with the local businesses, so they get, kind of, think if they get a certificate, that leads to a job. And even in New York City, you probably don't even know this, you should go visit it, there's a little school called Aviation, not a little, I think it graduates 1,000 kids a year, uh, or 500 kids a year, Aviation High School. Kids travel from all over the city, they are trained in how to maintain small aircraft, electronics, hydraulics, electrical systems. When they graduate $60,000 a year, everyone gets a job. You can do that in robotics, coding, accounting, a lot of healthcare fields, and there's another 20. I just can't even remember the list. That's what we should be doing. It doesn't mean you can't go to college; it just means that you get an education that leads to a job. It has to be done with local business. It's not a government program. And in fact, you know, if it works, local bu- business will kind of pay for that, and you do it here. We were—I've been at Focus Hope, and a bunch of uh, you all are doing it here. So that—that that is a fabulous thing that we can do. That can create opportunity for people, create jobs for people. Uh, and as you know, that has a huge amount of good social benefits, et cetera. Infrastructure we need to do, and you mentioned it. In immigration, there's a great bill that's already been, I think, passed by the Senate called uh, the Schumer-McCain Bill, proper border controls. Of course, you want to control your borders, but allows educated uh, individuals who mostly went to American, uh, advanced, got advanced degrees here in science, technology, engineering, and math stay. And I think we should let them stay and let them uh, build their careers and their homes. Something like 40% of the companies in Silicon Valley are from immigrants, you know, Russian, Indian, uh, German, et cetera. And, uh, and then have some kind of path to citizenship. And it's very tough. It takes like 15 years that if you're a good law-abiding taxpayer here but not a documented uh, immigrant, that you have a path to become a citizen behind everybody else. And look, and we're not going to kick 11 million people out. So uh, I think it's the rational, reasonable, responsible thing to do. I understand why people want the border control first, but I think we should do that too. So uh, there are all these things that could be done. They just haven't been done. And it's a shame.
1: So when you talk about immigration, and, and you've just said we're not going to deport, we're not going to kick 11 million people out, some of the rhetoric that we've seen this cycle has talked about these yeah. type of things. Is J.P. Morgan Are you Are other businesses in the Business Roundtable, are they going to be the voice that says, look, we need a much more pragmatic solution. We need a way to keep the people. We need a way to keep, particularly for the jobs that you need, and frame this as an economic argument, as a growth argument, and as a jobs argument.
2: Yeah, so the rhetoric, uh, which I thought was terrible in the election, I go to J.P. Morgan Chase and you know, kind of with that letter, I tell them, if you're black, Jewish, uh, uh, LGBT, uh, African-American, or a woman. We're going to support you in that kind of diversity just the way we did before. Okay, we're not, That's not going to change anything here. And in fact, I think you see the rhetoric, it seems to have like gone away. Even the rhetoric about immigra- immigration, President-elect Trump, who I think is sounding a lot different than Canada Trump, you know, has now said that if you break the law, we're going to deport you. And they estimated the 11 million undocumented that only 800,000 had broken the law. And by the way, that is the current policy of the United States. President Obama deported 2.8 million people, I think, for breaking the law. So. But absolutely, the, the, the business around has already supported immigration for that very reason. It is a pro-jobs, pro-argument, uh, and it's also respectful. The fact is, most people, you know, when they get worried about immigration, uh, it's not necessarily that they don't like immigrants. It, it, it's more sometimes when you look into it, they're more afraid that the American way of life is changing. So you could be multicultural, but still support the American way of life. You remember uh, Abe Lincoln? We're here to rededicate ourselves for this nation uh, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the notion that all men are created equal. This is the only nation on the planet that was an idea. It was a vision. It was a value. It was not a tribe. Okay, And so I think it's very that, And that a lot of people want to make sure that doesn't change. And that some people are confusing multicultural that somehow we're going to change, that we won't tolerate different religions, that we won't tolerate Different opinions that we won 't tolerate free press, and that you know honestly so you could support that and be multicultural
1: but when you also when you travel in sort of Europe where this is also a very deep um, phenomenon we see it in Italy, we see it in Germany, we see it in France, we see it in the u k to be sure, obviously with brexit, um, do you think this is a temporary phenomenon in terms of how people are feeling? do you think it's a generational phenomenon? do you think that it will essentially weed itself out or do you think this is a really permanent movement of people who are more focused on redrawing sort of national borders, national identity, regrouping around that in what has been a decade of constant, okay. more than a decade, two decades of constant disruption across so many stabling forces in right. their lives.
2: So uh, remember, when you look at something like Brexit, there were completely different forces for Brexit. Some were anti-immigration. Some were, they want open and free trade. Some want, so all these people voted for it for a whole bunch of different reasons. and. Uh, I do think if you go to Europe and part of Britain, there, there is the same frustration about income inequality, about growth in wages, about lost jobs. If you go to parts of Europe, 25%, so it's not, not the UK, not Germany, but 25% of people between 21 and 35 aren't working. Is that a sustainable thing if you have another generation of that? So I think there's a legitimate frustration about why is that? How did that happen? And a lot of it is government policies, by the way. So there is frustration. A lot of you saw it in America and you see overseas is, I want to change. They want a wrecking ball brought to you know, these governments. They want change. They weren't necessarily voting for a lot of things people said. They want something very different than they've seen. And you know, a lot of us are sympathetic with that. We want to see something different. We want things to be better. And again, you, ultimately, you have to have facts, analysis, and real detail to make that happen. You know, Populism itself can be very disturbing things because look at Venezuela, Cuba, Argentina, which is now going the other way. You know, um, the other thing about Europe, just keep in mind, we, we talk about all this disruption. They've had, you know, since World War II, peace. They didn't have peace for the 2,000 years before that. So there are benefits that people are reaping. Maybe they forget about it, but, but uh, it's important to have peace in Europe, too.
1: Well, you talked a lot about how getting things done and how government policy isn't structured right now to actually get things done. Let's look at Detroit, which is what we're here and what you guys have done with the $100 million investment over two and a half years. When you talk about this, when Peter talks about it, when other JP Morgan talks about it, when the mayor talks about it, it's a lot about nonpartisanship. Uh, that is what right. echoes through, is that people coming together and that it not be driven by, by policy differences between people. How, does, how is that working? How did that work here? Was it just that it was in a situation where that could work? And do you actually see that being able to be replicated in the sort of climate we live in on a more national level?
2: So um, the Detroit effort started when I actually sat down. I went to see Lee Saunders, who is the the of the, AF, the AFSCME, which is the Union for Municipal Workers, who was saying nasty things about J.P. Morgan. I walk in the room. I say, Lee, what are you saying that about? I said, I don't know. I don't know why we're saying it. I think you guys are a great company. And he and I hit it off, and he started telling me about the problems of Detroit. I immediately left that meeting. I called up Peter who's in the room. So it's really the people in this room, Peter Shearer and all the other folks in the room, who did all the heavy lifting. But we knew a little bit about the mayor. So he had a mayor, Okay, door to door, a white man in mostly a black community got elected. And he was talking about, what what do you need in Detroit? We need the street lights on. He got them on, all 65,000. When I first came, there was 30,000 that didn't work. And the first city with LED. We need jobs. We need affordable housing. We need uh, uh, housing for commercial markets. We need training and skills. We need, uh, uh, last night we did a thing for uh, uh, Entrepreneurs of Color Fund, 30 businesses who were helped by this fund. And they're somewhere in this room. And they're doing training, trucking. I think one of them worked on your light project here. So they, that was a big thing that they did. Restaurants. But this mayor had this huge set of problems. And it isn't like people say, well, what are you, what's the one thing you're going to focus on? He had to focus on all of them. It doesn't work to do one. He had to, get people, he had to get hope back. He had to bring businesses back. He had to build affordable housing. He had to get training, get schools, get the police, the sanitation, the sidewalks. And, you know, and with a smile, this man with a smile, set up all these things you know, like we would have done in business. Kind of the warm room for the lights, the warm room for the sanitation, the warm room for constantly tracking it all. And it's working. And it was because of the mayor and the governor, too, by the way, one Republican, one a Democrat. And just so you know, I don't give a damn about Democrats Republicans, okay? That they were talking about what is it, what's going to work to make this work for society, and we were all in. But we didn't just come here and throw money at it, which is easy to do. And as you know, philanthropy can often be wasteful. Uh, the team came up, and again, it was Peter and the team, and asked, what do you need? So they needed, for example, they had 70,000 blighted homes. They needed to get rid of them, but they didn't even know where they were. And someone came with this idea—I forgot who—and we funded it to use your iPhones, and your iPads to take a picture and geolocate every home you knew. Now, 10,000 blighted homes have been shut down. They can plan. He started selling homes on the. He has them on his mobile phone right now. And then, so we wanted to be an accelerant. We want to. Uh, we wanted to get things moving. So if you can build a building here, get some people into it, that helps the whole community. If you can start entrepreneurs, that helps the whole community. If you can start, so we try to do everything kind of think of more like venture capital that helps this get going and helps it get growing. Working with the governor, the mayor, all the civic unions, the not for profits here. You know, there are a lot of things that people here, you do on the ground, we couldn't possibly do. But partnering with you, you know, with our people, we also had our people come. So we've had, I don't know how many people, but so we've had 68 people kind of working on projects for 20 not for profits they need help. So it, we gave them data, analytics, money, advice, consulting, all the things you need to get certain things off the ground. So it's been a fabulous effort. And uh, and honestly, without a mayor like this, I think it would be a total waste of time. Uh,
1: the mayor told me today that the 65,000th light is going in tonight, actually, yep. so, and there's going to be a, an event. So that is quite an achievement. Um, why is doing something like this good business? This is a good business issue. We're talking about good business. Why is an initiative like this in Detroit good business for J.P. Morgan as well as for Detroit?
2: Yeah, so uh, you know, obviously there's, uh, there's business. It's not that we're, we lack morale. I would do it for moral reasons alone, but there is good business. So we are the largest bank in Detroit, okay? We, are, we were a national bank in Detroit, for those who don't know. It started by General Motors in 1934. In the Depression, most of the banks were closing. General Motors said, we need a bank in Detroit. That bank merged with First Chicago, Bank One, and then which merged with uh, uh, J.B. Morgan Chase. So here, we are the largest bank in consumer, small business, middle market. We bank all the major institutions, the hospitals, the major companies here, and the government. So it's an important town for us. It's probably one of the only towns in America that really did not have a renaissance in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Most other major cities did. And you know, so this has been a train wreck, which, you, which we all knew was coming, for about 20 years. Okay? And, that, and it shows you the worst part of bad public policy. And you could throw money at it. And, and unfortunately, it took the train wreck almost to happen to bring in a mayor with a, a vision and, and skills and leadership skills to get this done. So we, once we saw that, well obviously, it's here. But we can help the city. It helps our business, stuff like that. It, it could be a shining example of the right way to do things in society. And, and for us, it was a little bit, you know, if we, do, if we can do this kind of here, so remember, we bank here, we need a healthy, vibrant bank, this is an extraordinary effort. We can do it elsewhere too and help these communities where we are, and I think it's just good for society, obviously, very good for business.
1: When we talked to, I, I was speaking with someone last night at the, at, the, um, at the Entrepreneur's Fund, and we were talking about the neighborhoods. And part of this 100 million, of that 100 million investment, about 20 million of it is going directly into the neighborhoods and rebuilding there. Right. Where do you think the biggest challenges are? There's been a lot of success in Detroit. There's a lot to triumph from this initiative. But where are the areas where it's going a bit slower, where you see it's going to need further push to really get to that next step of revitalization?
2: Yeah. Like I said, you need almost all these things to work at the same time. And you know, the and Loans move downtown. But at the end of the day, it's going to be what keeps society vibrant permanently is jobs. Industry, business, and stuff like that. And it pays for everything else. So I think the most important thing is to continue to get jobs. I know there are a lot of companies moving here, a lot of startups. When I leave from here, I'm going to go visit Shinola. So to me, at the end of the day, that's probably the most important thing around which all the things happen. If you just build affordable housing and those people don't have jobs, it will no longer be affordable soon. I mean, so you really have to uh, build around the uh, business community.
1: And in terms of when you look at doing projects in Detroit and sort of building this out, the projects have been designed very much to be jobs and to center around economic right. opportunity and expanding that and making these neighborhoods and revitalization where people can walk to work or that they still have easier access or that you know, it starts with a family, it starts with a home, it starts with a job. Is that replicatable, do you think, on a much broader scale, Just even just the lessons that you're taking out of Detroit?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, if you travel around the world, and I get this, to travel around the world and see all these things, Singapore does it. It's a country. When it, when it formed, it, it was part of Malaysia when it formed. It was partially Chinese, partially Malay, partially Indian. They didn't speak each other's languages. A prime minister came in with the same kind of vision and strength to get it done. It is, it, its GDP is now higher than than the GDP of the average American. Okay, the prime minister was pretty tough. He made them all learn English so it could become a back office for companies. He, he made sure the streets were clean. When he when they have a lot of uh, affordable housing, he, but he made sure that they. Uh, that you you couldn't live like it wasn't an Indian building and a Malay building and a Chinese building. He desegregated not just by building and not just by floor, by apartment. He wanted them to know each other's kids and smell each other's foods and stuff like that. I tell people, had you put some of my liberal Democratic friends responsible for Singapore, it would still be a backwater. <laughs> oh, you can't force people to live where they don't want to live. You can you know you can't punish people for spitting on the streets. You can't make people learn English. That's what would happen. And so people have to think policy, what works and what doesn't work. And so, uh, and by same thing with other countries. I just mentioned Germany's vocational schools. Uh, and, and Germany's doing well in Europe, and most other country, countries aren't. Uh, so you, you learn these things when you go around the world about what works and what doesn't. And you can write, a, and there have been books written about it, Venezuela, Ecuador, Argentina, Cuba, North Korea, what did they do, and lar- largely populism. And you know, the ones that worked. And South Korea, no natural resources. Unbelievable story. Singapore, no natural resources. Unbelievable story. So I, I, mean, I can go on and on and on about what works and what doesn't. And you know, for some reason, I don't learn these lessons. You know, I, I worry about bad public policy just causing constant damage out there. And you know, in America, you keep on hearing you know, productivity is low. Uh, it's secular stagnation. It's a new normal. It's just, it's just not true. Okay, we've, we've had multiple wars. Okay, we, we're not educating our kids. We had government shutdowns, badly spent money, failures in the health system, failures in in, in an extreme amount of regulation. That's why we're going slow. It's not, it's not that economic model. And I, and I just find with people, they just, they're just looking for simple answers, and sometimes there aren't. So all these things are fixable. I just want people to be in government who say they're fixable, and I'll talk to the people and help fix it. And again, a lot of my Democratic friends, the last eight years, they would not talk to people. They didn't want to talk to people. You know, so you talk about who's the players? Put the best players in the field, put the best team in the field, and you will you will fix these problems. But what they have to do is work together, argue facts out, get the other people in the room, collaborate across business, civic society, et cetera. Otherwise, it's just not going to work.
1: This is having spent two years in Washington, the last two years. This is why I worry a little bit about. You going to Washington with the business round table. Not a place. I'm not of, going to Washington. Not, I'm just. I'm not a, a place yeah. of many fixes. But this is this is this is what I think. You know, can we in this in a new administration uh, with a cast of characters that is very different to what we've seen in past administrations? Is it possible? You believe that it's actually possible to sort of unite, given this extreme division, and particularly on issues you know, like infrastructure that we've tried to get in this country for. Mm-hmm. two decades now on tax reform, talking about regulation as well. Do you think that you, that you will be able to lead and that business will take a bigger role in saying, look, this needs to get done. This simply needs to get done. Look at our highways. Look at our roads. Look at our if, uh, not lack, uh, lack of a competitive tax code that we're having. But do we really have the will in Washington, you think, to make that happen? Yeah.
2: So I, I, here I run one of the biggest banks in the world, OK? And I have a good relationship with unions. You know, I try to have a good relationship with everybody, and that's my job, you know, is to make sure we do it. And I'm a little bit of an eternal optimist, and people always say to me, well, if you go do this and it fails, what are you going to do? You have egg in your face. I, I really, I don't care. I'm going to give it my best shot. That's what I'm going to do. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And I'll try again, you know, next time. And uh, business has to have a seat at the table, okay? Infrastructure isn't going to be built properly without business having a seat at the table. If schooling is not going to happen if businesses don't work with schools about what kind of jobs they really need. So yes, I think business could be a huge positive element in helping design an infrastructure plan that both Democrats and Republicans agree to. So what happens with infrastructure, I'm going to oversimplify this, the Democrats spend money, just spend money, just, and of course, you know, we do a lot of that. And a lot of people feel it just goes out to the bridges to nowhere. I mean, even Larry Summers wrote about this bridge in Cambridge between Harvard and Harvard Business School. It's a teeny little bridge, five years being uh, rebuilt. I mean, it's corruption, folks. Don't tell me it's not corruption. There are people buying off their local mayors, or friends, or unions, or whatever they're doing, or something like that. So the Democrats are right. We need infrastructure. We don't need it to create jobs. You all remember that famous Milton Friedman story? When Milton Friedman was in Asia somewhere, and they're building the highway. And they have these big machines in the back, but they're all using shovels. And he says, why are you using shovels? Why not use those machines? He said, oh, Mr. Friedman, it's a great question. Jobs. So Milton Friedman said, oh, well, in that case, why don't you use spoons? You know, and, and that's kind of the Democratic mentality. It will create jobs, but if it's a bridge to nowhere, you're wasting your money. If it's a bridge to somewhere, not only do you create jobs in the short run, it's conducive to growth in the long run. So the Republicans are right to be questioning how the money gets spent. So, that, so, so they, if they're going to do it, they're going to want to say, who's doing it, how is it being done, is it properly spent? There are a lot of ways to do that. A lot of it, by the way, would, would be to give it back to, you know, the, this mayor knows how to do it. I mean, we don't want Washington telling the mayor what he needs. He knows what streets he needs and what street lights he needs. And you know, the hardest hit fund is helping you. And so there are things to be done. I think business can bridge that because we, we are also a watchful eye on, on wasting money.
1: Going back to that Milton Friedman story, do you think we've done a good enough job in the president and other, and other figures now in explaining to people that part of the fundamental disruption that they're going through that has disrupted your own industry is this move to tech, to automation, that some of those jobs, that many of those jobs, you know, including in, in places like Detroit, in places where we saw a heavy swing in this election, Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, you know, Ohio, where, where I'm from, that those jobs are gone, and they're likely not coming back, right. and training people for the kinds of jobs, the mid-skill jobs, the upper-skill jobs, equipping our next generation of youth for those jobs. Are we doing a good enough job explaining that to people and right. equipping them to be able to succeed?
2: Right. So we So we're educating people about something the, the wrong way. Technology is the greatest thing that ever happened to mankind. Okay? Until we had agriculture, we, 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 we still would be hunting buffalo and living in tents. Okay? And agriculture allowed cities and specialization. Specialization you know, created uh, a knowledge. And knowledge was built on top of each other and created institutions. And you know, we, we went from fire to wheels to steam engines to you know, these wonderful phones we have in our, in our pocket now, which can do things that you couldn't even imagine doable. That it's, this is the reason that mankind is living the way it lives today. Okay, So we have problems. I'm not going to deny the problems we have, but we wouldn't be living the way we are today. When my grandfather was born, there were no cars, 1897, no cars, no planes, uh, uh, no health care. You got sick, you died. Okay, So now it's 120 years later, and it's pretty good over that time. And mankind's gotten better and better. There's a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature, and it actually analyzed things like, people who were murdered at the hands of other people, okay? And that number's been coming down every single century for the last 20 centuries, including last century, which included World War One and World War II. I believe this century so far is better than the last century, in, in spite of what you read in the paper. And so the mankind is slowly learning, I hope we don't destroy ourselves with nuclear weapons, but it's slowly learning uh, how to get better. Technology drives it. Yes, it's scary, it changes things, it's disruptive. We've done a bad job f- helping the disruptive. OK, so what we need to do is decide and say, we, let's not hold back technology. Let's use it to improve mankind. Like, people are worried about autonomous driving. 40,000 people die a year in cars. 40,000 people. You know, I'm, I'm just going to guess, but when we have autonomous driving, it'll probably be 5,000 people. It'll be a good thing, OK? Not a bad thing. You know, Warren Buffett talks about 11 million people working on farms You know, 40 or 50 or 60 years ago, and now it's a million. That's a good thing. Society moves past that and moves on. Do you want people going back to picking corn? Is that going to make society better? And you, because you have a job? Not really. Mankind's gone from seven days a week to six days a week to five days a week. And I my suspect we're already down to about four uh, as I speak. And, uh, uh, and so we will adjust. If we need to adjust, in t- you know, if you and I were in running the government, and all of a sudden you know, you're going to have 10,000 jobs left from technology, you and I would do something. To slow it down, to retrain. So one of the problems of this retraining, this is not about youth now. This is about someone who loses a, well, a good-paying job. How do you deal with that? Whether it's because of technology or trade. So you know, if you if a trucker loses a job, you know he doesn't want to go back to earning seven dollars an hour. He's got a family. He wants to live with dignity. There, we you can redevelop, retrain, uh, and do a bunch of things to make to ease that issue uh, and to make jobs available and stuff like that. I think it's doable. So I wouldn't stop it. Maybe you might slow it down or modify how it's going to function if it's causing too much disruption in society.
1: But this is why, I mean, it's the counterpoint, and, and I'm glad you brought up trade, it, it, you know, that people who feel that global trade has hollowed out their <coughs> community, their manufacturing, their industry in the part of the world where they grow up, it's very difficult to explain to people, well, look, yes, globalization of industry lifts, lifts boats, lifts, generally lifts the boat higher, mm-hmm. but it may not have lifted your boat, because yeah. actually, those jobs have gone to more efficient, cost-efficient Factories in Me- Mexico, factories elsewhere where labor is cheaper and they can get the product j- done just as, just as well. That is, a, that is a message that we see came and fly back in, in the election cycle This everywhere yeah. across the world. And people are sort of saying resisting globalization, that is, go- that is a trend that if it deepens will be bad for business right. and likely bad for your business. Look,
2: I think if you, there are issues where globalization was unfair. That, so I, and I won't go through the, you know, you could say that in steel or something like that. There are issues where it may have caused disruption We didn't deal with it properly. Hugely beneficial for mankind, hugely beneficial for the United States, but you're absolutely correct, if it helps 98 people, maybe there are two people that really hurt. So you're all getting cheaper sneakers, but someone lost their job manufacturing sneakers. Now most manufacturing jobs have gone from 20 million to 11 or 12. Everyone estimates that 75% was automation. It was not jobs going overseas. And automation generally has been a good thing. These were very, some of these are very tough jobs. And so, you know, mankind adjusts again. I would be in favor of uh, having proper trade, fair trade. That's a le- legitimate thing to say. It should be fair that helps America net, net, net. But where it does cause something negative, you know, in the trade bill in TPP, there was a thing called trade assistance adjustment or trade adjustment assistance where you would specifically, people can say, this hurt my community or my business, and then get relocation, redevelopment, retraining, income assistance, all those things. And again, you know, the, the republic is always worried about that that gets improperly done. But the concept is very good. And I think we should need to find ways to broaden that out so people say, fine, I understand. Society is going to take care of me, too, if I'm the net loser from this thing.
1: Let's talk about regulation, which you've mentioned is one of the issues of policy issues. When I talk to people on the street now and talk about, regulation the financial sector in particular and we see what may be a rollback of certain parts of whether it's Dodd-Frank whether it's other elements of the CFPB or stuff that has been brought in since the crisis and there is concern that it will go back to less regulated and in in people's minds less regulated means more risky and that there will be no way to control sort of the less um, the more esoteric corners of the financial world and that risk will migrate there and that there's a real risk that if this regulation is stripped back. I know you think that they've gone too far in certain respects. How do you see that debate playing over over the next four years?
2: Yeah, so you know, it's, it's a legitimate thing for people to say you don't want banks to jeopardize. You know, JP Morgan didn't jeopardize the system. We did not cause the crisis. We did not need TARP. And we have three times more capital than we had back then. Okay? We didn't lose money. How much do you think we lost in the nine quarters after the Lehman crisis? And people guess $5 billion, $10 billion. We made 20 or $30 billion. We were not jeopardizing anyone. In fact, we helped. We bought WAMA, We bought Bear Stearns. We saved 30,000 jobs in doing so. We helped governments, cities, schools, states, hospitals that probably wouldn't have survived, but for J.P. Morgan stepping up uh, uh, to do some well. So, but I understand the concept. The American public saw a disaster. It wasn't their fault. And generally, it was Wall Street and Washington. And they absolutely have the right to say, we want a safe and sound banking system that doesn't cost me money and doesn't take down my economy. Those are true. That does not mean it's a false logic. Therefore, all of these rules and regulations are good. They're, they're unrelated. So the American public has been told that, that you know, whatever bank wants, don't do it. Any you know, strength in Dodd-Frank, that's not accurate. Okay? Some of these things, a lot of the things in Dodd-Frank had nothing to do with the crisis. I mean, zero, nada. They were just the pet peeves of certain Democrats who just put things in because they felt like it. Someone said to me once, anything that has the name of a senator on it, that was their bad part. Like, Barney, Frank, and I agreed on some of the things that should have been in there. Anytime you've done major legislation and major regulations, and they're different, by the way, uh, it's perfectly reasonable for people to look back, reanalyze, recalibrate, think it through, talk about what good it did, what damage it did, how we can help. Folks, we have not solved the housing market with mortgages. Because we haven't solved that issue, which is among seven agencies or something like that, People are unf- Banks and other institutions are afraid to make mortgages to first-time home buyers, self-employed, or people who had a prior bankruptcy. Now, people who had a prior bankruptcy, you know, 80% of the time, is perfectly legitimate. There's nothing wrong with them. It, it was usually due to death, divorce, disease, loss of job. Not in one case was it you would say that's a bad person. They deserve a second chance. We haven't fixed that. You know, you, I would look at some of the rules and regulations of uh, 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 reducing credit available in the system, but they do not create more safety and soundness. And I don't want to bore you with the details about that. So Dodd-Frank isn't the Bible. okay? And you know, to me, matter of fact, even Chuck Schumer used to say to me, look, eventually these huge legislators will be opened up. When we look at it, recalibrate it, synchronize it, you know, reduce the negative parts of the cost that has no benefit, while still accomplishing the ultimate goal. So it's a perfectly reasonable thing to look at these things and try to figure out what you could do better, uh, as opposed to a knee-jerk reaction. You know, everything that was put in place was good.
1: Do you think the days where people, the industry essentially has a scarlet letter on its back, still from the crisis, is are over, or at least fading?
2: I, I don't. I don't know if it's going to be over. You know, it depends who you speak to. Like in my profession, most of our customers like us. You know, like our, our customer staff's never been hiring consumers, small business. I tell people I'm welcomed around the world uh, with presidents and prime ministers. I'm welcomed in Detroit and uh, California. I say the only place I'm not welcome is Washington D.C. You know, I mean somehow. But the the industry got a bad scarlet letter. You know, this thing about TARP. I mean, the second TARP happened, that was a scarlet letter. Not every bank needed it, but the rhetoric was all the banks were bailed out. They were not all bailed out. That part was not true. No one ever asked that question. But that became a scarlet letter. No, I don't think it's going to go away for a long time. And I think all you can do is just earn your stripes every single day by doing a good job for every single client, every single community, and every single city around the world. And you know, that's my job. I'm very proud of J.P. Morgan Chase. I'm proud of what we do and what we accomplish, how we help society. When we do make mistakes, we admit them and try to fix them.
1: So I want to thinking about that in terms of as we're approaching the end of the president's eight years in office um, and looking at sort of what he's accomplished in his relationship with business. You've had an up and down relationship with the administration. If you're being candid, what grade letter would you give him on his rating with, that, with what he's done for business?
2: I, I, I'm not going to do that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I wished they had spent more time having conversations about what works and what doesn't work and working with business and not acting like business with the opposite. So today you hear the Democrats very often, I'm gonna take care of you, 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 I'm gonna take care of I'm gonna give you free education, I'm gonna forgive you, and, and it's, al- it's almost always like the person they're gonna take care of you from is us. I just think it's wrong. Okay, I just think that whole attitude is just is just misguided. Sounds good, it's misguided. I listen to Bernie Sanders speak sometimes, and you know, he wants to take care of he wants medical insurance for everybody, he wants pension benefits for everybody, he wants good paying jobs for everybody, he wants education for everybody. The minimum wage we're gonna play in Detroit starting soon is fifteen dollars for a teller. We train them, we put two hundred million dollars into them. We pay people well. Everyone who works at JP Morgan Chase gets medical insurance. So, that person making $15 an hour makes $33,000 a year and medical worth $10,000. If they have a family, it's worth $20,000. They also get a pension and a 401k match. Okay, so we, we, I, I, listen, we do all those things. We train our people, we take care of our people, we take care of our communities. Uh, we're doing exactly what it sounds like I think you want a, a, a good company to do. And so, uh, so sometimes Bernie and I are together in that. You know, we're. <laughs>
1: I'm sure Bernie's going to love that when he sees this. <laughs> um, let's talk about minimum no, wage. No, like you
2: about the press, okay? Here's the, here's the American press. No one asked Bernie Sanders or Bernie Sanders' supporter during the whole campaign that I saw, what is socialism? And how is it done elsewhere? Well, uh, there are two answers. It's never done well elsewhere. It's been a disaster. And socialism is where the state owns all private enterprise. That's what it is. Well, you think someone asked? Do you think people would have voted for that?
1: I don't, yeah, next time I see him, I'll... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but talking about minimum wage, that's been one of your big pushes. Yeah. And you believe it's vital to growth as well. And as you said, you've moved up at J.P. Morgan. We now have a, Labor, a nominee for Labor Secretary who's been one of the most open advocates against raising the minimum wage and has been quite firm about that.
2: I, I, I don't think so. Because I, what I read, this, what he said is that the government should be very careful about raising its minimum wage too high. It should be a decision made at a local level. Because you all, you know, a lot of businesses you know, can afford, California and New York can afford $15 in you know, New York City. But upstate New York probably can't. Okay? So I think he was saying that he's not against states raising it thoughtfully that it can help people. I'm kind of in favor of that. I would be non-fair if the federal government's doing it and imposing real hardships. But the other thing is, if I, if you can afford it, I say if you're a business you can afford, it, raise it, share the wealth a little bit. Okay? I tell the people at J.P. more I'm more worried about the pay of our lower-paid people than our higher-paid people. You know. So, but the, the other thing is to help society is the earning Income Tax Credit. That's that's my example is that will help small business. So if you're a small business that needs wages at $10 an hour to get by and you can't afford medicals, so I'm not saying you're a bad person, but that's how you survive then this, this will really help you. You can attract better people to be paid more. You'll probably have less attrition and allow you to afford, maybe afford more benefits over time. So there are solutions to this. And us raising it is just a teeny piece of it.
1: You are generally an, opti- an optimist. Yeah. When you look at the world as it is shaping up right now and when you look at this administration, what are the things that concern you? What are, the, what are both the things that concern you and what are the possible black swan events that we could see that would be truly disruptive? Okay.
2: So you live in the best country in the world, I travel around the world, I say this when I'm elsewhere too, that the world's ever seen. And it's better today than it's ever been. Somehow we've had this notion it's not. It's better than it's ever been. Okay? And we have all the food, water, and energy we need. We have the Atlantic and the Pacific, which the founding fathers recognized as a huge material benefit. We have peaceful and wonderful neighbors in Canada and Mexico. There's no war in North America or South America. We have the best universities, best schools, best businesses, best innovation, best rules law, low corruption. It's unbelievable. OK? Some other countries have that. But make a list of you know, Brazil, the BRICS. Brazil, Russia, India, China, they don't have a lot of that. China, and I say this respectfully, China, its neighbors are North Korea, Philippines, Japan, Indonesia, Vietnam, Pakistan, Afghanistan, India, and Russia. And they don't have enough food, they don't have enough water, they don't have enough energy. OK? They would love to have our school systems, our market things. They talk about market reform. They have 5 million, 100 million people living in poverty. Again, I'm saying this respectfully. Okay, and Americans don't appreciate enough. And I think they should step back and appreciate. It Doesn't mean they're not they're, that we didn't make mistakes, and we have to fix them. Otherwise, you know, we we will lose this unbelievable position of So that's why I'm an optimist. Okay, there's never been a 20-year period where America didn't forge massively ahead, including the Great Depression and World War II. And people don't say that, recognize that geopolitics is always an issue. So when you talk about geopolitics. You know, If you look at the geopolitical trends, and one of our accounts made a list of all the big ones since World War II. Korea, Vietnam, five militaries crises, two Afghanistan, two Iraq, Iran-Iraq, China had a border skirmish with Russia, India and Pakistan, China and Vietnam. Uh, I'm I'm missing a whole bunch. Only one ever derailed the global economy. The others had an effect, like Vietnam had a huge effect for a long period of time, but only one. And it was a 1973 militaries crisis derailed the economy. So geopolitics is always very noisy. Very rarely has an effect. I think it's a little worse. As so I always say, where is it kind of the, from normal friction? Is it better or worse? Probably a little worse. We've got a lot of wars in the Middle East. You know, more and more uncertainty around nuclear, which I think is one of the greatest risks that are thre- if they're going to threaten mankind. And that's it's Iran, Russia, and North Korea. North Korea is going to ha- has a bomb, and they're soon going to be able to deliver it all the way to California. That's not my assessment, it's the assessment of top people, and they might, you know, in the government, they might have that in two two years or so. Okay, those are, that's a serious issue for the world, but, uh, so I worry obviously about that and, you know, peace in the Middle East, but in reality what I worry about the most is bad policy. Bad policy, us doing things that make it worse. You know, like government shutdowns and failures here and not fixing the school system, because if you want populism, you want to get worse, don't fix the school system. Grow the economy slower. That'll be worse for the world than almost anything else. And the world needs a strong America. And America, you know, I always remind people, our military might, and the military is unbelievable. You serve the military. God bless you for doing it. It's unbelievable. holy it's the highest regard. It's directly related to our economic might. So we better be really careful about the vibrancy of this economy and make sure we have that, because that is the solution to a lot of these geopolitical issues too
1: the world needs a strong America, does the world need an America that's closer to Russia?
2: Look, you know, look the geopolitics is different than friendship, OK? So when you say that, it's like, you know, we're going to go hug Russia. There are serious issues with Russia. They should be dealt with very seriously. I think they're kind of resolvable, you know? And so, uh, but I don't know that. I'm not an expert in that. Uh, you know, we obviously do business there and, uh, uh, but, but if you made, I would put that on the list of things that should be done, so my own view. We should have a very strong relationship with NATO. NATO has been dramatically weakened all these years, dramatically. Okay? And American troops should be side by side, both in the Middle East and in anything that takes place in Europe to defend Europe, side by side with you know, British, French, German, Italian troops, not just American boys out there. Okay? So by the way, it's exactly what Donald Trump is talking about if you listen to him. And then that group, the transatlantic group, should offset uh, uh, Putin. And you know, all that means is, is that he can't go anywhere that's in the EU. And I think that my own view, and I've listened to Henry Kitcher, I won't go through it, that you can have a negotiated settlement of Ukraine. And it's probably doable at one point. So uh, uh, you know, after that, I don't think Putin wants to pick a fight. I think he wants to get rid of the sanctions. I think he wants, to, he wants to become important in the world. He wants to be an accepted leader around the world. So we'll see what happens with Russia. But I, I think it's a serious issue right now.
1: When you look at, um, when we look at, there's been a lot of reshuffling in the banking industry, even in the recent weeks, and leadership, and you're not going to be the Treasury Secretary now. You will be involved in, in advising administration. When you think of your own legacy and looking forward, with Detroit very much a part of it as well, what is it that you want to be remembered for? What is it no. that you want to have achieved? When,
2: when I was a young CEO, a uh, former CEO of the company came to see me and said, You've got to make a mark. Leave your legacy. Do one big thing. I said, like, what are you talking about? He said, like, you know, build international or whatever. And uh, I think if a CEO talks about one thing, sell the stock. OK, because y- we've got to do it all right, just like the mayor's doing here. I've got to have systems right, technology right, culture right, people right. I've got to do it right in every country. You know, I've got to get the whole mosaic right or I fail. So the one thing I wanted to say, we're going to miss that son of a bitch. The world, where the, hopefully the world is better off for him and, and the shows are better off and he made this a better place and that's it. I'm not looking for any other major, like, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase already, I am so damn proud of my company, by the way, I want to you know that. I am proud of our people, we do every day, it's, it's got unbelievable capabilities. I want to make sure that this is still one of the best banks in the world in 20 years. I, I do worry about competition with China and other people. So uh, this bank is its capabilities are unbelievable, and you need a bank like ours. John Stewart made fun of me because I used to say He'd Say it sounds like that movie. You need me on that wall, you know. You need a J.P. Morgan Chase for the great future vitality of American society. The knowledge, the capability, banking our companies all around the world, doing a twenty billion dollar bridge loan, trying to help people do things. It's unbelievable, and so I'm just I'm just proud to be part of the place. Is there yeah.
1: going to be a second act?
2: After you leave, when you leave, any hint? I don't. I mean, Jimmy Lee, who passed away, one of my great friends and partners, said to me one day, "You know, Jimmy, you can do one last big thing." Said, like what? He said, "Like turn around to GM for the government or something like that." He said, "Are you kidding me? Now, this isn't for me. I live and breathe J.P. Morgan Chase. I wear this jersey. It's not about my comp. It's not. I tell us the board, you know, so you say, do 'Don't tell the board that.' But I really mean it. It makes no difference to me. I want to make this place better, and I'm going to give it everything I got as long as I'm here." And when I'm no longer here, if I can't give all I got, I should move on. You, I could help do stuff, but I shouldn't be the CEO. You know, If you're going to be the quarterback or the head coach, you got to give it your all. There's nothing else you can do. And so when I leave here, no, I'll probably, I'll probably teach a little bit. I may write. I may write a book. I mean, I've been through a lot. I have a lot to share, I think, at one point. And um, uh, teach, get involved in business. I've never been in, uh, I have been on boards, but I'm not any boards Say, so go to public company board. The, a company I like, the people, and the product, and going to not-for-profit. You know, I'll probably, I'm lazy, so I'll probably go to New York City, maybe join or start an entrepreneur color fund. I'm going to have a gas. I'm going to do a lot of stuff, but I will not run another major big company.
1: OK, last question then. If Donald Trump did call you up in a year's time, in two years' time, if we did see the economy teetering a bit, if we felt like things were slipping back into a recession, would you take that call? Would you join the administration? I would,
2: first of all, I would never not take a call from the President of the United States of America and listen to what he has to say and consider what he has to say. So that's my thing. Again, I don't think I'm suited for it. Now, If you somehow convinced me I'm the only one who could do something like that, I would consider it a patriarch duty. I doubt that that's ever going to be the case. But you're open to it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would take the call. I don't, I, then I don't think it would happen.
1: Well, thank you so much. I've tortured you enough, and I want to thank you so much, so much for being in this audience. As you can see, it's always great to have any time with Jamie. He's as candid as it can be. He tells things like it is, and it's been a pleasure for me and, uh, and great for me to, to, to share your stage. And thank, thank you, you all so for sharing
2: this with us. Ever welcome, Mr.
1: Detroit. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to Debrief. I'm Megan Murphy. You can find me on Twitter at Megan Merp. Businessweek is on Twitter at, at BW. And Debrief is available on iTunes, the brand new Bloomberg app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.